Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Duncan Stroik joins us today. He is a practicing architect and professor of architecture at Notre Dame. He is the author of The Church Building as a Sacred Space, Beauty, Transcendence, and the Eternal. And today he joins us to discuss architecture and architectural education at the present time. Welcome, Professor Stroik. It's an honor to be here, Mark. I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first tell us about the Notre Dame Architecture Program, whose webpage states... Quote, the school emphasizes the principles of the traditional city and also uses the past as a way of informing the future. Now, uh, first, generally speaking, is this respect or even reverence for the past unusual in architectural education today? Certainly. Yeah, we are the first uh, school of architecture in probably 70 years to re-embrace tradition as a uh, basis, foundation, and as well as to learn from tradition for our pedagogy in architecture. I, I, I noticed that, that that commitment to tradition really does go back to, what, 1950 or so, and you are certainly carrying on that legacy, but yeah, 1950, I mean, classical models, they were really out back then, weren't they? Oh, yes. After the war, World War II, we, we in the West won the war, and uh, we won it with great technology, and it was a new, brave new world, and uh, we needed to embrace technology, and we did. And the architects were, uh, the young architects who had survived the war, we're all primed to do this, and the old architects were dying off, and there wasn't much of a, there was kind of a whimper of uh, debate at the time, and they tore down nice old buildings like uh, Penn Station in New York and other great buildings all over the country, and they built uh, glass and steel um, high-rises all over to make our world a much better place. So at that time, they didn't look back at the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building near where I am now. They were only 20 years old at that time. They didn't look back at those and say, amazing, those are great buildings. No, they didn't, unfortunately. They saw them as kind of wimpy predecessors to modernism, to people who knew part of the truth but didn't embrace it. And now with modernism, they were going the whole way and rejecting everything that had come before, which and 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 uh, accepting modernity, which was so good for all of us, and again had won the war. Right. You know, I didn't 
I, I didn't, I mean, I don't know much about architectural history, uh, but I didn't think about, yeah, the, the triumph of the war through American technology, American industry, that gave a certain moral authority to, to modernism at the time. Huh. Yeah, huh. yeah and I, I, I suppose you could argue that in Europe had already had a certain amount of mm, success in modernism and before the war and even you know whether it was uh western whether it was ally countries or axis countries there was an embrace of modernism yeah. and uh but we had not really embraced it until after the war and it was all gung-ho just you know uh rocket ships and cars and uh and buildings that look like ships when did you get to notre dame duncan if i may ask so I've been fortunate to be here just about 33 years. Were you, did you have another academic post before that, or was this your first? This was my first. I um, taught a little bit in grad school, and I worked for a, a great architect in D.C., Alan Greenberg, who was one of the first new classicists uh, starting in the late 60s. Hmm. And Alan taught me a lot and was gracious enough to help me to come to Notre Dame, where we started this new program in 1989. Mm -hmm. uh, you, I, I gather he retired already. Well, it's funny. I was just on a plane to New York a few months ago, sitting next to a young woman, and we were talking about why we were going to New York. And I told her I was going to the retirement party for my old boss. And she said, yeah, that's very nice. How old is he? 84. Huh. All right. <laughs> I finally retired at 84. He, he loved uh, he loved what he was what he was doing. And you you've been you've been one of the main forces in holding Notre Dame to the tradition. Well, there have been a lot of us um, that have been involved. It's really been a, a great team of architects from different points of view, different strengths, different emphases. But we all embrace uh, tradition capital T and uh, traditional cities. We, we teach all of our students go to Rome for a year and we love Rome and we love other great places in America and Europe. And we love uh, traditional cities and urbanism and, um, and we debate other topics. So it's a very healthy academic situation. And um, the person I like to give the most credit to, I mean, there's plenty of people to give credit to, but the person I like to give the most credit to is the founder in 188, 1889. 1989, uh, Thomas Gordon Smith came here from Illinois to start the program and to put Notre Dame on the map architecturally. Now, now at the risk of giving in praise to competitors, are there other identifiably traditionalist architectural schools in America besides Notre Dame? Yes, and thank God for competitors. We're so thrilled. I am so thrilled that we have competitors because Competition, though uh, difficult, it keeps you honest and keeps you on your game. And right now, yeah. we have uh, uh, a couple of a uh, couple of schools. University of Miami has been teaching traditional urbanism and new urbanism, as well as traditional architecture, mm -hmm. for almost as long as we have been doing it for 35 years or so. And then, um, then there have been a couple of new programs. There was a program at Andrews University. Now we have a Nice new, really good program at Benedictine College mm -hmm. in Kansas, which is excellent, run by mm -hmm. John Haig. 
and then uh, a lot of my grad students come from there. And then uh, uh, there have been a number of people, James McCurry's been at Catholic U, C.J. Howard at Catholic U for a number of years, and they have a new dean, Mark uh, Ferguson, and they are, they have a, uh, they, I would say they have a, one of the things you can do is a classical, uh, uh, classical emphasis there. And so that's very exciting to have all these places, Miami, Catholic U, Benedictine, and a few other little places. Now, in, in the title of the, the book that I mentioned at the beginning, you speak of sacred spaces. And you've done chapels and cathedrals in many locations in the United States, including Hillsdale, that, that are actually beautiful and, and uplifting creations. And one would think that certainly sacred spaces would resist the pull of modernism and hold to the glories of the past. Can you tell me, Duncan, what in the world happened to church architecture in the 1960s? That's a great question, really, yeah. Being people of faith or the people of faith, you would think they would hold on to their their um, physical embodiment of that faith, in some cases for 2,000 years. Why would we reject it? But that's what we did. Um, the A couple of reasons um, before... Vatican II, the architects, of course, in Europe were pressuring the church to embrace modernism. Hmm. Um, both famous people like Le Corbusier as well as not so famous people were saying, look, you got to get up with the times. It's concrete. It's abstraction. It's asymmetry and so on and so forth. And some um, leaders of the church uh, did uh, uh, allow that or did uh, hire them to do that. A couple of famous churches like the one at Assi hired I think six famous artists uh, to do paintings there and pretty shocking at the time. And so there was this movement from the artist side to pressure the church to do things that were more of our time. And but then there were people in the church that uh, were interested in that because they thought they were going back to the primitive church. Hmm. And um, uh, Key Keffer from uh, from Chicago writes about this, how. Uh, the liturgical movement, which started out wanting to to promote the liturgy and and uh, participation in the liturgy, and to really not get uh, uh, not get too uh, off that they um, they saw modernism as a friend because maybe that was going back to the primitive church where we sit in the dining room, we sit around a table. It's all very casual, and that's original Christianity, they thought. And so the modernists offered them this architecture, which seemed like maybe it was going back to first first things, and uh, which it wasn't. But that was the that's kind of the the myth, and there was allowed this marriage between liturgy and architecture. And the liturgists, the liturgists from that point on were modernists. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. 
you know, you, you have a, a photo in one of the pieces that you, you sent me of that, of, of that cathedral that it was built in Los Angeles about 20 years ago. And right. I went in there actually with an architectural, uh, architectural historian who actually she loved it because it, it seemed it pairs everything down to just post and lintel, you know, the most basic fundamental. And, and I, and I was, is, is that, was that the justification that we had the simplicity of the early church? Was that an idea in that cathedral? I don't know if it was or, or, or not, but I wonder if that was a theological rationale for that sort of anti-ornament and, and real simple lines and, and, and the rest. I don't know. I think I think it was in the 50s and 60s and maybe even the 70s. But by this time, by 2002, when the L.A. Cathedral was built, it's just the tradition of modernism, which is iconoclastic hmm. and it rejects history and it rejects it rejects images. There's as few images as possible in that building as you know, although there are the tapestries, which people like. And of course, in rejecting the past, we've got to reinvent the wheel. Hmm. So. Um, that's part of it. You enter on one end and make a U-turn to come into the church. Um, hmm. So, but that is the that is the original argument in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Is yeah, simplicity, noble simplicity. Let's go back to the early church. Things weren't so fancy. The Baroque was a bad thing. Yeah. The Gothic was a bad thing. These were all bad periods of time. Looking back on it now, we would many people would say, oh no, these were great times for art, for architecture, and for the faith. But that was an argument at the time. You know, you gave a great lecture in Seattle uh, a few, a couple months ago, and I, w I was there watching. <laughs> Duncan, you, you, you did it right in that you simply showed before and after pictures of, say, interior spaces. This is what the altar looked like before. And then they came in and they modernized and they, they, they fixed it up. And I, I remember in a few cases where we, you would show the after picture, and there were a few people in the audience who actually gasped at how awful, what, what, what a terrible loss it was. You, you actually put them side by side, and everyone said, oh, what, what was lost in, in this? Uh, and, but you actually noted some doctrinal justifications or rationales for a lot of those changes, like, like what you said about the... the the early church, but can you share with us what were some of the uh, some of the changes in interior spaces that happened in those post-war decades? Maybe some of the worst ideas that that came into play beyond just no more ornament, you know, no no more no more profusion of beauty. Were there certain things that you could you could point out for us? Yes. So there's a whole host of them that. It's interesting, they got experimented with by these architects, some of which were agnostics, atheists, Protestants, um, some Protestants, you know, would be inherently kind of anti-traditional. Um, any rate, and they experimented with a number of ideas. So, like you said, first of all, it's limit the number of images. Too many images are confusing to people. If you have if you have two images of the Virgin Mary in a church, people are confused. Which is which? Is which? Hmm. Now, of course, that would negate lots of great churches in the world, which might tell the story of the Virgin or Stations of the Cross or you know, all kinds of things that you might have more than one image of uh, Mary in. 
So, but limit the number of images, only one, and then they follow this uh, as if it's doctrinal, only one cross, you know, only one, only one, or, or as little as possible. Then the next step was get rid of all the distractions. So the artwork is a distraction, the architecture is a distraction, the stained glass is a distraction, get rid of it all. It distracts us from the liturgy. The liturgy is about the altar. The altar should be as bare as possible. And it's about the people. It's, it's really as, um, at that time, Cardinal Ratzinger would write, it's, it's an inward-focused church. So get rid of all these distractions. Most importantly for the liturgists, the architects didn't give a rip because uh, they didn't believe, but for the liturgists, very important, that great distraction was the Blessed Sacrament. Move the tabernacle out of there because that's passive. That is not, that is the passive presence of God, whereas the real, the active presence is the people. So focus on the people yeah. uh, in a uh, baptismal font at the entrance. That became an immersion font, uh, a la the Baptist tradition or ancient tradition. Um, uh, get rid of side chapels because you only want one altar. You can't be celebrating uh, private masses. Really get rid of side shrines, even side chapels, side areas to pray. Because we should all be together. We shouldn't really be going to church to pray. We should be going to church to worship or to celebrate the liturgy, you know, on Sunday morning or whatever. That, so the church becomes actually less functional. It has less options. There's only, there's only a few things you can do in church. Don't do that other stuff. And, of course, this was reinforced by the liturgist saying things like, oh, you can't say the, the rosary during Mass. That's... That's a that's confusing. You you can't do two things at once. You can't walk around and chew gum. It's that same mentality. Now the average person was happy to do two things at once, hmm. and we still are. But that's the mentality of minimalism and of modernism. Um, now, when you focus on the people and you get rid of the distractions, it's kind of anti-architectural. It's kind of like we don't care. We don't want art, and we don't want uh, architecture. So what they went to was, well, what kind of building might be the most anti-church building? And you can get a lot of people to sit around a theater. So I think ultimately we started designing churches like theaters with sloping floors or bank seats or in a circle or in a uh, choral uh, 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 location left and right. And it's all about us then. And the performance is us. Hmm. And so that was kind of the next step. You know, in, in a chapter uh, you wrote entitled, Can We Afford Not to Build Beautiful Churches? You note that while tons of church building went on in the post-war decades, when you look at recent histories of church architecture, you find hardly any mention of, what, the last 60 years. Isn't this, it, well, it, is this, the test of time ha has been applied and the modernism in church architecture has failed. Has Duncan, has that lesson sunk in? I think it has in the U.S. <clears throat> Thank God. We are the leaders in the world right now for building new churches that look traditional, for, for commissioning new artwork, for organizations of churches that are sacred or more mysterious. We're leading the whole world. The Brits are with us, but they're a smaller group. The, the other English-speaking countries maybe a little bit. Uh, but rest, the rest of Europe, South America, they're still, uh, being, they're still being obedient. 
to living in the 1970s. Hmm. Uh, I hope that that is changing, and I'm excited to see that change. But really, in America, the average priest below 60 years old and the average parishioner would prefer to have something that um, makes them think of God rather than of themselves. Yeah. You actually believe that some of that architecture dampens the activities of faith. It actually discourages faith. It has, it has an impact, uh, certainly in the public square, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, and the public square is one of the places that I came to uh, classical architecture was to realize that the church is one of those wonderful balances to the state and to uh, institutions and to the private realm and that we offered hope and you know goodness and faith and eternity and so our building should exhibit that somehow and so i started on a you know i started on a journey to say well i think our buildings do that but how do they do that you know hmm. with towers and with beauty and with iconography and you know uh, what is the image of a of a of a great uh, city in europe it's with the catholic church on it and even if i go there to have a beer or a cappuccino uh, that's the great piazzas and the great places. You know, I, I was in Milan a few months ago, and the Duomo there, it, it draws human beings like a magnet, whether they're Catholic or not. And they, they, they gather around it, they stare at it, they, they feel, they know that they're in the presence of, of something mighty. And beautiful and and sublime and and you want to say, come on, look at this, <laughs> look, look look where where people people are doing pilgrimages, even even secular people are are doing this in in this case. You know, you you have in one in that same chapter, you have a picture of a small church in Seaside, Florida. Uh, I've actually jogged or biked by that church probably more than a hundred times um we, we we had a place down there for 20 years great uh seaside is one of the gems of the new urbanism where does the new urbanism stand in in uh in in the architecture program at notre dame so yeah that's a good point we have always been supportive of the new urbanism since our you know, even before uh, Thomas Gordon Smith got here, there was a lot of friendliness towards traditional towns and villages. And Seaside is really, uh, though it's a resort town, it's really one of the first great new examples of how to build an old town. Yeah. Walkable, uh, pedestrian-oriented. Uh, town uh, square kind of yeah, thing. Town square shopping, yeah. And so we've always been uh, fans of that, promoted that. We've had faculty who get involved in new urbanist charrettes or do urbanist projects, um, and our, our present dean, Stephanos Polozoides, is actually one of the founders of new urbanism uh, back 40 years ago. Huh. You know, I think the people involved in originating Seaside might have been undergraduate students of Vincent Scully. And on one of the big, bigger buildings in Seaside, there's a gigantic mural of Scully's face. And all these people who come to Seaside, they love going there. They don't know, you, you know, you're, 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 you're standing in the shadow of, 
of a of a of a you know fifty foot tall image of of a Yale architectural scholar teacher historian. I, I think it's it's great. Yeah. It's great. But you have you done any new urbanist work? Not 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 your thing. Um. So uh, I have been a big fan of new urbanism and I've promoted it and my students work for some of the new urbanist firms and some of my favorite architects do work in those towns. Um, but probably because I'm seen as a, a ecclesiastical architect, there's not a big push yep. for that in these towns. They're small. These are small resort yeah. towns. So I haven't been fortunate to work there, but I'd love to. Yeah. But no, we very much promote uh, the new urbanist towns as well as the uh, new urbanist neighborhoods. The thing that I've done closest to that is I've gotten to work on a lot of college campuses, and we always try to do a a proper chapel and then a design to you know for a new quadrangle and new buildings for whether they're dormitories or classroom buildings. So yeah. in that sense, I, I try to get involved. You know, in one interview with with John Miller at National Review, you state that a church shouldn't be just, quote, a worship space. It should be a, quote, sermon in stone. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's, it's our chance in building a church or even beautifying a chance to speak to people. And the pastor and the architect and those who support them uh, create a statement, create a speech that will resonate for decades. And so it's not just about the here and now, uh, but it's for our children and our, our grandchildren to speak to them. So what do we want to tell them? What do we want to tell people about the faith and about life and about God? Hmm. And it should be beautiful. It should be large and expansive. It should be uh, merciful, um, but it also should be of high standards, uh, excellence. And so that's what we try to do. And um, people, I think, are mainly moved in that way, though, by the artwork. So even though I'm an architect and I believe in the architecture and how it can speak to you, good or bad, probably the way that really speaks to people as a sermon in stone is through the paintings and the sculpture and the bas-reliefs. You, you, to go back to your life, uh, Duncan, you grew up in Reston, Virginia. And I remember, you know, growing up uh, for, for a time across the river in Potomac, hearing about Reston, Virginia. My mother was in real estate. Reston was this sort of new, innovative, model, suburban community. Uh, I don't know exactly if that was new urbanism or, or not, but did you experience that as a child? Did, did Reston sort of give you a, an, an architectural idea? Yeah, I think that I think that Reston and there's some other towns like Reston um, in D.C. and around the country was a modernist response to uh, a town or village, to try to create a town or village that had some of the qualities that were deemed to be attractive to people. Uh, suburbia wasn't always so attractive. The old Towns were fine. This is going to be brand new. So it's a modernist new town. And it's funny whether they would admit it or not. They were trying to go after many of the things that you would find in a traditional town or village. Yeah. So walkable, safe walking uh, bike paths, 
public spaces, whether it's a little park or whether it's a, you know, a, a soccer field near residences or tennis courts near residences. So, and, and planning it out. The uh, kids can walk to school safely. They can walk to shopping safely. So a lot of uh, very idealistic things that were generally true in historic towns and villages around the country, they tried to do in a modernist way. Now, the architecture was all thoroughly abstract and iconoclastic. So on the one hand, it taught me some good uh, principles of uh, nature and of walking and of uh, town centers. Uh, but on the other hand, the architecture was very dated. It's very dated and of its time, and um, I don't believe it's timeless. So it has good and bad. And I think the new urbanists would not want to give it too much credit because they feel that what they did in the 70s and the 80s was to come up with a model that was more specifically traditional, especially in its um, density. Yeah. Because Resta was very spread out. That that's that I was there recently in in Resta. I don't think it's aged well in in that sense. It it is spread out. It feels suburban. Yes, it's nice. It's nice suburban, but yes. it, it it doesn't have the, the the any of the closeness. You don't have really the village green uh, type. It's really very car oriented uh, in a way the new urbanism isn't. Uh, yes, I think that's exactly right. That would be their critique, and I think it's a fair critique. Yeah. But what's interesting is that in the 60s, Robert E. Simon and some others and some architects said, we're not doing a good job. The modernists, we're not really doing a good job in terms of our planning. And so they tried to plan a better city, yeah. better, not a city, but a town. Yeah. And that Reston is one of those. And the, But the architecture, they couldn't see that the architecture needed to change, just the planning. And then the new urbanists, I think, took it the next step. Yeah, I, I you know, I still remember when I was young hearing hearing about Levittown. Levittown, yes. no one remembers Levittown anymore. You, you don't hear that that talk. To, it was it was a really big deal in the 1950s, wasn't it? Yeah, and it influenced everybody because you could build affordable affordable yeah. houses, and everybody could have a yard, and it was great yeah. after the war. Yeah, and uh, the irony of what Levittown is, uh, of course, Bob Venturi taught a studio at Yale on. Levittown's almost okay, you know, saying showing how, how why it succeeded and why it's actually okay or almost okay. It and, it actually had a lot of communal. I mean, yeah. look, you, you had all these houses, all these families, all these kids. Yeah. Uh, it, it had a certain kind of communal. I mean, the architecture is what every single was every house the same in Levittown. It seems like it doesn't it? It seems like it. And yeah. what's funny about all these uh, projects when the houses are all the same is that over time, of course, people try to. Um, make their house more particular, more personalized. Yeah. It's yeah. human nature, and yeah. it's nice. But yeah, uh, but yeah. Uh, what, what did you what did you design? Oh, oh boy, we're, we're you know something. <laughs> we're we're out of time. So I'm gonna, I, I was gonna I was gonna keep I, I was gonna ask you about your design at Thomas. You, you've done a lot of things. Thomas Aquinas College. You have a, a great design there at. Thomas Aquinas. And, you know, so the next time I'm going to have a Thomas Aquinas person on and I'm going to ask about Duncan Stroik's uh, chapel design. But we'll we'll have to we'll, we'll stop there, Duncan. Uh, uh, but well, we'd love to have you write something for for first thing when you when you carve out the time between between your projects. Uh, but for now, I will mention your book, The Church Building is a Sacred Space, Beauty, Transcendence and the Eternal. And we'll have some uh, some attachments, links to your to your writings on, on the website when we post this. Thank you, Mark, and thanks for helping make us the smartest generation. <laughs> Thank you.
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.